Welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly podcast from Capacity Media on all things digital infrastructure. I'm your host, editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have editor-at-large Alan Burkett-Gray, deputy editor Natalie Bannerman, and reporter Saf Malik. Later in this episode, we will also be joined by Braham Singh, the CEO of BDX, so we look forward to talking to him about all things Asian data centers. But before that, it's time for the headlines and a roundup of the news for the last seven days. Airtel subsidiaries have been particularly busy. Airtel Africa has made the grades during the FTSE 100, effective Monday the 31st of January, while Nextro by Airtel has commissioned a 21 megawatt solar plant for some of its facilities in India. In Brazil, IHS Towers has agreed to acquire 2,115 towers from GTS for 315 million US dollars. In the US, Baltimore, Maryland, DC, and Northern Virginia are to be connected on a new fiber route following project announcements from Harbourlink. While in the UK, BT Wholesale is to provide the data center needed for 4G and 5G services to launch on the London Underground. And staying in the UK, the government there has picked Arkit Quantum to join a project to build ultra high security in 5G communications. While Vodafone UK is following in the footsteps of its German and Italian units by closing down its 3G network, which now carries less than 4% traffic, according to the operator. That said, open run revenues are still expected to account for around 15% of the overall 2G to 5G run market by 2026, according to a new estimate from the Delaro Group. But now to the bigger stories of the week, and we are going back to Telecom Italia and its latest response to the KKR bid, which seems like it's been going on quite some time now. But Saf, you've been following this one for weeks, so over to you for the first story. Thanks, Melanie. There's been developments with Tim for every week since the turn of the year now, and the latest development is that its new CEO, Pietro Labriola, has been given a mandate to explore strategic alternatives as it ponders KKR's $12.8 billion bid ahead of a board meeting on March the 2nd. It's now emerged that Tim would be open to a spin-off of its infrastructure assets as it looks to explore options to create value for shareholders. A split of Tim's operations would pave the way for a merger of Tim's infrastructure assets with state-owned rival OpenFiber. And this is a move that has been backed by state investor CDP, which owns 60% of OpenFiber and 10% of Tim. No other telco has completed a split of its network from its services, but amid growing frustration from Tim's largest shareholder Vivendi at the KKR bid, a divide looks to be increasingly likely. Labriola was appointed as CEO earlier this week and he's continuing to work on a plan that will be examined by the Tim board. That plan will provide a benchmark for Tim to evaluate KKR's approach. The new CEO has been working on the three-year plan since he was initially appointed as general manager in November. Since he's come in as CEO, he's highlighted the need to pursue a transformation process of the offering and services for the consumer segment and to focus on enterprise services such as cloud IoT and cybersecurity. Tim said that the new CEO underscored the need to guarantee a stable, long-lasting growth outlook for the network infrastructure in the interest of all stakeholders. That is an interesting string of developments, let's say, because part of what they've announced overnight is this will actually open up the door to a spin-off of some of the infrastructure assets, which I know that, you know, as a publication, we've obviously been covering the nuances around, around how that would work for quite some time. What do you think, Staff? I mean, which way do you think it's going to go from here? At this point, anything is on the table, but the board meeting on March the 2nd is probably absolutely crucial to Tim's future. So I think we're going to find out more in the beginning of March. But Pietro Labriola, he seems to have a plan going forward. He's not telling us what that plan is, but it seems to be stable and long lasting as Tim keep on telling us in their press releases. They do, yes. It just seems that the Italians do not want to be taken over by KKR as they continue their global spree to snap up everything that they can. Alan, Natalie, what do you think about this one? Because you both covered various angles from the Telecom Italia story over the years. 
Yeah, it's a problem, isn't it, for Tim? I mean, they just need stability. I mean, they've got through, SAF says, they've got through, there's been stories almost every week since the beginning of the year. But if you look back over Tim over the last two years, they've got through more CEOs than any company can reasonably expect to do. Uh, it's very wooden. It's it's like a secure a job as being a football manager for a failing Premier League club. It really is not very good, not very comfortable. They just do need to sort out the future of Tim and what happens to its infrastructure, what happens to its services. It's sort of constant crisis. It must be not a happy company to work for. Yeah, and it's interesting that they are considering a spin-off of its infrastructure, just because I, I suppose one would assume that part of the KK offer, or I suppose the biggest part of that that KK takeover bid would have been for the infrastructure assets. So I wonder um, if that spinoff goes ahead, whether or not it will be as a an appealing investment opportunity, because as we know, global telecom services, depending on, on your footprint and, and what you have to offer, it, it's usually tied to the infrastructure side of things. So I'd be curious to know what the kind of logic behind that is if they decide to go down that route. You know, there was obviously mention of um, those infrastructure assets being combined with the open fiber project, which would mean that it's state owned. Perhaps it's for regulatory reasons that infrastructure can't be in the hands of a foreign investor, who knows. But uh, yeah, I'd be interested to know from that perspective what the decision was there. All very good points. Hopefully we'll find out in due course. Let's see. But Natalie, staying with you and going down under now, Australia has a new digital investment vehicle. Tell us more. Bevan Slattery should be a familiar name to, to our listeners, but for those who don't know, he is the entrepreneur behind such companies as Megaport, Superloop, Asia Pacific Data Centers Trust, and a whole host of other tech and telecoms ventures. He has actually launched a new company for investments in Australia's digital infrastructure and sustainability. Now, the company or the um, investment vehicle, I suppose, depending on how you describe it, is called Soda, which uh, Capacity has confirmed stands for the Slattery Office of Digital Assets. They also confirmed that the formation of the new structure reflects an evolution that has been underway within Capital B, which is a Slattery's previous investment vehicle for quite some time. The same um, Soda spokesperson actually said that organising the Soda operations under three distinct pillars provides greater clarity of our direction heading into the future, both for its team and its partners. Now, those pillars, the first of which is Soda Infrastructure, which is focused on the development and investment in Australia's digital infrastructure in the Indo-Pacific region. The previous investments include the company's Indigo and Oman Australia cable subsea systems. The second pillar is Soda Ventures, which will invest and support Australian tech entrepreneurs and high growth businesses looking to execute a global growth strategy. Now, when we asked as to whether whether or not this will include any M&A activities, the Soda spokesperson explained that Soda Ventures will take a strategic capital position in innovative platforms and support those businesses with the broader strategic initiatives, which in some circumstances will include mergers and acquisitions and capital raisings. In addition, they also confirmed that Soda Ventures will look to support relevant businesses across the broader tech space, meaning that they won't exclusively operate within the telecoms and digital infrastructure space, which is really interesting because obviously we, we can look forward to a little bit of diversification there. Now, the third and final pillar is sustainability, an area that Slattery has actually long been passionate about, particularly uh, the application of technology in this field. The first of its projects aims to establish 1 million square metres of environmentally tolerant reef, a project that Slattery has been working with universities on and aims to have the research and development stages completed over the next few years. There is also Biopixel, which is a company that has been 
building the largest online digital video library of the Great Barrier Reef and provides content for companies such as the BBC, National Geographic, Amazon, Netflix and Discovery. In addition, Soda has also targeted carbon neutral across the entire group by 2023 through direct investment in renewable infrastructure with an initial megawatt solar array planned for the second half of 2022. So overall, a really great initiative under those three pillars. And as usual, Mr. Slattery is kind of leading the way in Australia's kind of tech and infrastructure development. This is a really interesting story. And they actually told you, didn't they, when you got in touch? Well, as you mentioned, that it reflects the evolution that's been happening within, you know, his other previous investment vehicles. And it's really great to see how that develops because, you know, normally when you hear about these things, they'll, you know, as has happened with this one, they spew all the big words about vision and drive and accelerating things. But then how that actually progresses and, you know, translates into action sometimes does get forgotten. But this release on Soda is very detailed and they go into, yeah, there's a lot of depth about the projects and the ambitions, which is really, really quite interesting for Australia because it has had its share of connectivity issues, let's say. And you mentioned sustainability as well, which was quite a funny one because Bevan's quote about carbon credits, he said that if you want to talk the talk, you need to walk the walk rather than greenwash through some dubious carbon credits. Yeah, so that was good. That was very um, heartwarming to hear. Natalie, in terms of how this is going to kind of feed into the wider Australian infrastructure landscape, I mean, Bevan's, he's top of the tree at the moment, isn't he? How do you think this is going to impact other players and, you know, really open things up in line with what he has in mind? There's, you know, huge amount of development um, happening in the kind of Indo-Pacific region in general, you know, Australia as well, you know, so many data center projects and, and things that we're hearing about. I think it took somebody who has that standing within the industry to kind of really lead the way. You know, we hear about so many projects being sustainable, but as you mentioned, really kind of talking the talk versus walking the walk. And he really is putting his money where his mouth is. And I think we will continue to see other companies following suit because I think once you have the blueprint and the framework from, you know, an organization that's already doing it, there's no reason for anybody else not to follow, both in the kind of sustainability side of things, as well as the, you know, the investments that he's making in both infrastructure and tech. Very much. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks, Natalie. Well, moving on to the third story of the week, back to Tonga, which has become the most connected group of islands in the world, I would say, since a volcano exploded not too far away on the 14th of January. Now, the industry has been very quick to assist and ensure that following the break in the subsea cable, that satellite connectivity can be deployed and that people are still able to communicate across the islands and with the outside world. Now, Alan has been following many of these announcements and they just keep coming. So Alan, just Give us an overview. What is actually happening in Tonga? Thank you, Melanie. Yes, I've been talking to Shali Janif, and she's regional CEO for Digicel, which is one of the big mobile operators in the region. She runs the networks on, I think it's five islands in the area. And that bit of Digicel is about to become part of Telstra in about three or four months' time. And I've also been talking to Ranulf Scarborough, who was on Digital Digest last year. He's CEO of Averroa Cable, which is the cable that connects the Cook Islands. So although that Cook Islands weren't affected by this volcano, he's got a lot of experience of resilience in the region. So Shali Janif says, yeah, now as of Thursday morning, uh, they've got the gigabit per second to Tonga via satellites and a, a number of different satellite services, including SES and Intelsat are providing connectivity to the area. That's a gigabit a second normally on the cable that was cut. They've got about 5.5 to 6 gigs. So they've got 20% or a bit less than what they normally use. And this is a population of 105,000. So 105,000 for a gig. They've got 
got voice and SMS and basic data such as WhatsApp connected, and they've got the banking systems back up so people can use money, pay things and so on. So that's a really important part for, for their economy. Fortunately, there seem to be rather few casualties from the volcano. And one of the things that escaped was their network operation center, their NOC, which is with a lot of foresight built on some of the highest land on the main island of Tonga, well above the tsunami level. And everybody from Digicel headed up to the knock when they got the tsunami warning and they're all fortunately safe. But obviously we've got a, a delay before the cable is restored. There's a cable ship Reliance, which has been laying lots of cables around the Pacific region. It's on the way. It left Papua New Guinea about a week ago. It should be in Samoa to pick up stores at the weekend. That's the weekend of the 30th, 31st of uh, January. And then it, once it's picked up the stores, it should be heading off to Tonga. It's fairly close. It should be there by Thursday the 3rd. The, one of the big worries the people I've been talking to say is that normally if you get a cut, which there was a cut four years ago by an anchor, the usual problem of a subsea cable operators, you get a very short, clean cut, you drag the cable up, you put a few hundred meters of new cable on, uh, and then you lower it back down. But the problem is there's a landslip caused by the volcano, so they don't know yet until they've got on site how much cable has been destroyed. So they're hoping that they've got enough spare cable on some mower to repair the, the break. They're going to do the Tonga cable first, which goes from Fiji to Tonga, as that carries all their international traffic, 90% of the traffic or the whole system. Last time, four years ago, it took about a week when they had the uh, anchor cuts. This time, they say, Shelley is saying that they could be two or three weeks because it's such a long job. They just don't know what sort of damage it is. So that puts us to mid to late February before the main international cable is back. The other islands, well, firstly, they've got some microwave links, but they've been knocked out of alignment and they need to get uh, some technicians in by helicopter to realign the microwave dishes so they're back on on track. And then they'll look at the uh, extension cable to the other island. Reliance, the cable ship Reliance will do that after it's done the main cable. So that could be March before that's tackled. And the people I've been talking to have focused their minds about resilience. And Ranulf and Shelley point out that sometimes dual cables are not enough because if you've got one cable landing station uh, and that text taken out by a volcano or an earthquake or something else or a tsunami, then you've got a problem. You need dual cables of different positions around an island. And of course, the problem is that it's expensive to put cables down. And if you've got, as with Tonga, only 100,000, 105,000 people, that's the market. It's very expensive. Usually what comes to help is, is assistance from development banks, which is usually low interest rates, but you've still got to service the interest and that makes it quite expensive or very expensive indeed. And as Shelley Janik pointed out, it's just going to get worse. Climate change is going to make storms worse over the next few years. They're going to make the sea level higher. So people are going to be more careful about where they put facilities. But the good news is that you know, Reliance is on its way. And in a few weeks time, Tonga should be properly connected to the world. But I think other people are looking at how you make sure that there's a duplication of facilities where that's affordable, that with multiple cable and landing stations as well, so that these places stay online despite all these things that happen, whether it's earthquakes or volcanoes or 
cyclones or hurricanes, for example, in the Caribbean, that's been a big problem. And as someone pointed out, one of the problems with the Caribbean network moving away from moving away from where what's happening with in the South Pacific is that a lot of the cables are 20 years old, so need to be replaced during the next few years anyway. So there's possibly a an opportunity there for people to have another look at what's going on and what sort of facilities and what sort of capacities needed. I think what we're going to see in the short term is that people operators are going to make sure that there are lots of satellite facilities for some satellites are not always brilliant because of the latency. If you've got a geostationary satellite, you've got about a third of a second latency, which isn't great for conversations or for computer work. But LEO and low Earth orbit and medium Earth orbit satellites are much better. Uh, medium Earth orbit like O3B, which is owned by SES. O3B and its successor, which should be in operation over the next few months and year, next couple of years, would provide a really good broadband service with quite low latency. And I think people have just got to face that the day of the satellite is back. Some sort of data, geostationary satellites are good if you just want to download movies and things like that. But if you're really wanting to have a conversation or to get online to address, you know, do you do you some bank transactions or whatever else it might be, you need low latency that only fiber or low earth orbit satellites can offer. And of course, we have a number of those coming around, but I guess the South Pacific is quite low in its priorities. And the other problem with low earth orbit satellites is that you need a lot of earth stations, probably about every thousand or 1500 kilometers, because if your satellite is only 800 kilometers up, it cannot reach both you and connection into the global networks unless until you get satellite to satellite communication, but that's going to be the next two or three generations of satellites who will be able to do that. So it's coming, but one has to be patient. Earthquakes and volcanoes and so on happen. And if you look at in fact, earthquakes, volcanoes are a big problem. Shelley Janif was saying that one of the concerns that she's got at the moment is that there's a volcano on Vanuatu within that sort of South Pacific cluster of islands. And that's been bubbling away over the last few weeks and people are watching it very carefully. It the ring of fire around the Pacific. It's always going to be a problem. You can't do anything about it. You just got to learn to live with it and make provision. That is very true, yes. But you touched on the age of question of redundancy and the role of government in funding projects like this. Now, I wonder with all these satellites, obviously they're not cheap, neither are subsea cables, no, no mode of connectivity is. Um, but how is this going to affect the wholesale costs when it actually comes to deploying that connectivity on the islands? I mean, it would be really interesting to know that moving forwards. And in terms of the role of government, I mean, as you said, Tonga is not, you know, it doesn't have the same commercial dynamics as other more lucrative markets to deploy any project. So, you know, what is the role of government in that moving forward? Should it be an international body that helps fund that and make sure that things like this don't necessarily happen again in future as the internet becomes more integral to daily life? There are a lot of moving parts on this one. Thank you so much. There are regional collaborations. So, for example, there is a cooperative of subsea cable operators in the South Pacific. So they collaborate on spares and make sure they use the same sort of cable and the same sort of equipment. So that's what the Reliance is going to in Samoa at the moment to pick up spares held by the regional cooperative so it can repair the cable. But yes, regulators, governments and operators will, I think, over the next few months be getting together to talk about how they work together to ensure resilience. And that may be is deals with satellite companies, but also deals with cable operators. Fantastic. Well, thanks for that report, Alan. So next in this week's episode, we are joined by Braham Singh, who is the CEO of BDX. Now, there's a lot of news from BDX, and there's a very interesting corporate structure behind the company as well. So we're going to cover a few topics today. But Braham, welcome to the Digital Digest, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Melanie. I'm looking forward to talking to you folks, and thanks for making the time. 
Thank you. Well, we've got a few things to cover today, namely a new offering that you have for your customers, sustainability across the Asia region. And I'm sure there's going to be a few other topics as well that we come to over the course of the conversation. But to begin today and just to quickly set the scene, BDX just extended the reach of a customer solution that's on offer called 360 Degree U. Now, this has been offered for a few years, but you've updated it and it's now available across all verticals and beyond your customer base as a free download, um, which is interesting. And you've also added the ability to track carbon credits. So we'll come to that as its own discussion in a moment. But to set the scene, how does this work and why was it developed? We created a cluster of data centers across Asia uh, through acquisition. And recently, of course, we started building two. And the first thing we tried to do is avoid duplication uh, in this data center cluster. Duplication of people, duplication of systems, duplication of overheads, because you would acquire a data center from, say, uh, Hutchison. It was independent, everything, the systems, the people, the infrastructure. And then you would have buy another data center in Singapore and you would have the same HR department, accounting department. So we needed to rationalize this. We needed to centralize some functions and then keep these data centers, you know, minimally manned, highly automated. That was the, the goal. Now, meanwhile, interestingly, a group of very angry environmentalists were tackling a similar problem of duplication with CERs, you know, the Certified Mission Reduction Certificates being issued to companies by the UN under the Kyoto Protocol. Apparently, many Indian and Chinese power plants would ratchet up their emissions and then reduce them at the end of the year to earn the CERs. And they were making millions and millions, hundreds of billions out of this. This didn't sit well with these environmentalists who then started working on a software to address the problem. They called it Single Truth. VDX team acquired that cloud-based module and we created 360 View. That then allows our central command, each data center and customers to see the same truth. And so each, they will all see the same information on the power, on temperature, on humidity from anywhere in the world, as long as they download the app on their device. So that's how 360 View came about. It is so funny. It was given to us by people who were in sustainability, but our first use of the product was nothing to do with sustainability, simply to efficiently manage our data center cluster. Now, given the amount of power data centers consume, as you know, sustainability is a big ticket item for PDX, and we are constantly looking for solutions. So one of our smart guys, uh, kids, you know, one of the, uh, our very intelligent IT people said, hey, you know, we are managing power. Why don't we also add accounting to the module, which we did. So now the new 360 view, besides doing everything I just told you, managing the data centers. It also calculates your carbon footprint related information in the front and it connects to carbon registries at the back and also to carbon blockchains. So now what's happened, folks, is that it's become a lot bigger than just for data centers and colo customers. So that's where we are right now, which is why we're just giving it away free, the front end, the front end calculation part. You know, anyone can download it, use it. And a lot of people who are doing it are not part of a target market. We'll never sell anything to them, but heck, we are all in, in it together, right? When it comes to greenhouse gases. So we're just giving that away. So that's where we are with 360 views now. Well, thank you very much for that detailed answer and congratulations as well on the release. I'm very happy to hear that this is something that's so close to your heart. I'm going to pass over to you, Alan, for the next question, because this release comes with, I mean, you mentioned the carbon tracking, but carbon usage effectiveness as well. And we all know that there are some issues with measuring carbon emissions in relation to data centers. And this is a topic that our editor at large, Alan Burkett Gray, did actually assess in detail for a magazine feature not so long ago. So Alan, over to you for the next one. Yeah, thanks, Melanie. This feature I wrote was end of 2021, I think it was, and I was trying to find 
find some sort of relationship between all these different measures like PUE, power usage effectiveness, and COE, carbon usage effectiveness, and so on, relating to how it related to how they related to what a data center actually does. And of course, data center does lots of different things. Some do some really high power calculations, some store videos and stream them so that we can all keep entertained every evening. Some provide services such as what we're using now. So is there a way of saying PUE or CUE or whatever for a data center? This means what a data set, how effective a data center is. This relates to how effective a data center is in doing its everyday job. So a uh, great question. The PUE is the one. The PUE decides how effective a data center is. Basically, it's the ratio between the amount of power the data center uses for the server and the one it uses for everything else in the cooling. The lesser the PUE, the better it is. So a two PUE means it's using as much power for servers as it's using for cooling and lighting and air conditioning, and that's not good. However, a 1.5 PUE or 1.2 PUE is very good because uh, it means you're using most of your power is being used for the servers, which is what you are the business to do, right? And then it, it, that means you're a very efficient data center. So for example, today we had a talk with the Singapore government and they have told very clearly that as you know, they've had a moratorium and uh, they bill lifted conditionally for companies OPUE less than 1.3. Now, why is it important to Singapore? Because that means power is being used efficiently. It's not being wasted. As you know, we have got a bad rap or data centers, you know, we consider to be power guzzlers and the, the way to mitigate that is by PUE. So if you want to know what is that one thing, the one metrics that defines whether data center is functioning effectively or not, it's PUE. Now, we also, uh, as responsible citizens, look at other metrics like the, 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 our carbon efficiency. But all of that comes into the sustainability side, of course, getting more and more important every day. But as regards the hardcore functioning of a data center, the engineers are only responsibility they have is PUE. You will generate the lowest PUE possible. Now, here's the interesting part. The lower your PUE, the more effective you are, the better your carbon footprint. If you look at a data center, folks, how would you measure the carbon footprint? It's two ways, right? One is the power it draws. So the grid supplying me has to have a high renewable content. So that mix of, you see, if a, if a grid has, is 30% renewable and 70% dirty coal, great. If, you know, ideally it's 50-50, I would be deliriously happy, but we don't get that many parts of the world. So what we do, and I'm digressing a little here, what we do is we set up our own renewable power plants, which I squared does, and then we pipe in renewable power into the grid, and then we pipe it back into our data center and we have then a higher percentage of renewable power. So that's one element of, of your carbon footprint. What is the carbon that you're using? And then, of course, you have how effectively you use it, and that is decided by PU. Your effective use of power is PUE. What do you mean by effectiveness? Because if, if you've got a data center that's doing a certain set of tasks, which may be, it might be providing services to Facebook and so on. How do you measure whether it's doing those tasks, those data center oriented tasks in the most effective way in terms of data processing as possible? Just looking at the server itself or the servers themselves. 
the servers are provided by the customer, right? So look at the data center's job. The data center's function is to keep environment, is to house the servers in a safe and climatically, climatically controlled, which does not change, you know, 24-7, 365 days a year. So we have to be 99.99 percent of the time, there has to be uptime. We can't have an outage. We can't allow the server temperature to rise. And let me tell you, they rise very fast. There's so much of heat being generated because of all these hundreds and hundreds of servers, rows and rows of servers generating an awesome amount of heat. And my main task is to pull that heat out and to keep that data hall climatically controlled at the right temperature. That is my job. What is happening in the server is not of my concern. And the only, so the only metrics that decides for the customer, whether I'm doing a good job or not, the fact that the relative humidity and the temperature has to be controlled, all that is, of course, a given. I can't just say to save my PUE, I'm going to switch off this function or that function. That's also not allowed. Cooling, of course, in a place like Singapore, where, you know, I'm looking at the chart, the average temperature or the peak temperatures this week has been up to 33 degrees Celsius. That's if you try to cool something and you start with a high ambient temperature, that's a bit of a challenge. Right. But one would think that in Singapore, having the PUE of anything under, you know, two would be a challenge. But we have we've done it with technology, with insulation, with properly managed systems. So right now, my own data center in Singapore is at 1.3, which is very close to what the government wants. So I, I need to expand. So for expansion, I have to now show them I can do 1.25. It's very achievable if you design it properly, manage it properly manage the airflow intelligently. But all of this, at the end of the day, my guys, the, my chief operations officer, Jeremy, his KPI, end of the year, the incentive part of his remuneration is hugely impacted by PUEs of the data centers across our cluster. So that is what decides how effective we are. PUEs also govern our gross profit per kilowatt. It is actually, you know, now that you guys mentioned it, it is the most important metrics for a data center, a PUE. Thanks, Ron. Well, that's good to know. Thank you very much. Natalie, you had a great question about the use of this expanded 360-degree view. Yeah, so my question, Abraham, is how will 360 view be used by businesses, you know, outside of the data center co-location space? For example, could it be used by, you know, a company whose footprint is made up of like fiber network or even tower or subsea assets? Essentially, is it applicable across other infrastructure verticals as well? So let's see what it does, right? So right now, 360 calculates the RECs, the, what do you call those? The renewable energy certificates at the front end. So these are what in the carbon world are called scope two, meaning that this calculates just the power related efficiencies. But there are so many verticals with so many different measures of ascertaining their carbon footprints, you know, rainforests, et cetera. So there are different modules for different verticals. We, at this time, only deal with scope to RECs. That's what we offer when it comes to front-end calculations. So any vertical which is using generated power, any vertical that's drawing power from the grid can simply download a kit that we offer uh, on our website, or we also give a bill of materials, go and acquire those eye, uh, eye sensors, you know, the standard, you can get them anywhere. You attach those sensors to your pieces of equipment. My engineers will, you know, have it all in the manual. These are the, you know, the gen sets, the, the UPS batteries, the cracks, the coolers, whichever equipment is being used by you, which is being powered by the grid. You attach the sensors to these equipment, and then you connect them back to the APIs that we offer from our cloud-based platform. 
once you connected those sensors to the API, irrespective of what your vertical is, as long as you're using it for scope two, mind you, and you download the app, you download the 360-view app, you're off to the races. On the app now, you can see the information the sensors provide. The whole idea here, folks, is to be able to manage remote facilities and their carbon footprint without having a human interface. And I'll come to that later if the question comes up about why blockchain, why, what is driving, for example, blockchain in, in the carbon in the carbon industry. And it's precisely this, the urgency to limit the number of humans in, in the mix. And which is what 360View does for anyone who wants to calculate a carbon footprint, or in our case, you know, for anyone who needs, a customer needs basic information on the facility that is thousands of miles away spread across the globe, doesn't matter. Because this is a cloud-based platform, you simply plug into the APIs and wherever your facility is, you can get the information on a, on a smartphone. So that's what it does. One thing I did want to know now that you've cleared that up, bearing in mind that it's designed to measure the power usage for scope two, is there plans to expand into the other scopes, you know, scopes uh, one, scopes three or anything like that? Today, I was asked by the board, why even do this? And I said, well, because we are responsible citizens. They, they love the answer because, you know, a lot of our funds are demanding that we calculate our carbon footprint on an annual basis and audit it. So to that extent, we are very happy with what we're doing. Will we extend the scope of this? I don't know whether we should, because those guys, you know, those angry environmentalists I told you about from whom we acquired this module, those guys are out. I mean, they don't have a, a single vertical like we do to answer to our shareholders. They have the mission and we leave it to them to do that, to go across all verticals, see how you can handle a rainforest, see how you can deal with these chemical companies. I mentioned about the, did I mention in the beginning about this far plants that would ratchet up their emissions? Well, there were these chemical companies in India and China who were doing the same. So those, their emissions have to be monitored, but all that is way beyond our purview. However, anyone who wants to calculate his scope to carbon footprint related, you know, information, he can use this very productively. Perfect. Thanks, Brian. As we see more new tech coming to the market, such as gaming, 5G and so on, it will lean more on edge infrastructure. The edge will really change the volume and distribution of data centers. So in your professional opinion, what does that mean for sustainability in the industry? Because there are huge concerns around this in Singapore, for example. And is there anything an emerging edge operator, for example, can learn from the likes of a major player like PDX? So PDX itself has aspirations to move out to the edge. Now, why would we be very successful at the edge and why would we invest in that? And that's because of 360B. Once again, if you have these remote data centers out there in the hinterland and smaller data centers, first of all, they're not consuming all the power. There's no power guzzling big data farm. These are small data centers spread across the landscape. And managing them becomes very cost efficient if you use 360B. So if these data centers, which we plan to put across, say, for example, India or across Indonesia and have them connected with 360 view. We can almost we can have them almost lights out. That means they only have security there and uh, we don't need to have operators there. We have something called fleet management. So there's a problem there. The 360 view identifies the problem. The technicians come up in a vehicle, start the problem lead. So that is how we expect to handle the edge data centers. 
As far as sustainability goes, these smaller data centers, they don't eat up the kind of electricity or kind of power that the big ones do. And as far as the big one goes, you also mentioned Singapore. In Singapore, they're not very keen on the edge data centers and they don't make sense in Singapore. It's not, you know, it's a small territory. Edge data centers would make a, would make the, a difference in Thailand, in, in Indonesia, definitely in India, Philippines. But in Singapore, it's the other way around. There's a nice conundrum there. Singapore government has on one side, it wants to be very efficient on power. It is very worried about sustainability. On the other hand, it knows that it cannot have small data centers. So they have to have scale. So in their latest announcement, which was today, actually, they said a data center has to be a minimum 10 megawatts for it to make sense in Singapore. So from 10 to 30 megawatts, is what they're looking at. Anything under 10 megs, it is not of interest in Singapore Cup. So you can see that in their case, it doesn't make sense. They are looking for larger facilities. At the same time, they're pressing down on sustainability. And so what that means, and what was told to us very clearly today by the government is, you want to you know, build data centers in Singapore, you have to have, number one, scale. It has to be 10 or more. Number two, you have to have a sustainability model for this data center, the power coming to it. And number three, it's got to have a PUV of under 1.3. So that is how Singapore is going to manage sustainability. So I hopefully explained to you the logic behind edge data centers and also how Singapore is demanding that we, we means the whole industry, get its act together on sustainability and power efficiency. And that will be key moving forward. So thanks for that response. And just going now to staff for the last question of the interview. Of course, we've established that sustainability is key to the data center industry, but how important is the carbon emissions of the construction of those buildings to BDX? Uh, and are you looking at greener methods to construct data centers? Absolutely. I, I came into this three years ago from the telecom world where sustainability, we were building data centers, of course, but the whole weight of sustainability has come on my shoulders in the past three years. And we started off very foolishly with just, let's just build and, you know, just focus on PUE. Not anymore. Now our vendor selection program is very comprehensive. How much carbon is there in the construction material? They have a sign off. I have four chaps. They have a sign off right in blood. A lot of scope three related requirements we have. So absolutely. You know, we're not a big data center guys. You know, we are three years old. We are hugely profitable because we function effectively for all these, including stuff like 360 viewers helped us do that. One would want to be excused from some of these more severe sustainability matters. However, you know, we are native green, I like to call it, because I'm the old guy group, everyone else is under 40, and all of them are fanatic about sustainability. So the leadership team is hell-bent on making sure that scope two and scope three are covered by us in our own you know, daily operations and construction before we you know, offer sexy solutions like 360 view to others. We better get our own act together, which is what we are also doing. Thanks, Brian. And thank you so much for all that insight. It's been great to speak with you today, and we hope you've enjoyed the interview as well. Well, it was fun. Nice way to end a long day, you guys. It was fun talking to you folks. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks to the team for bringing us latest on all those stories. Thanks to everybody who listened. A huge thanks to Brown Singh for joining us live today. And a special thanks to Richard Cosgrove for editing this episode. We will be back next week with more stories from the global tech and telecom space. But until then, you can catch up with all the latest over at capacitymedia.com. Don't forget, we also have nominations open at the moment for our 20 Women to Watch 2022 and the annual Data Cloud Awards. For now, that's all from me and the team. Have a great week. Take care and catch you next time. <laughs>